Good morning, Grace Point. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. I say this every time I, every time I come, but it feels like coming home when I come to Grace Point. I was married 15 years ago, standing right about right here. Uh, I interned here as a college student. They, my office was, was down in the in the dungeon. Uh, you can read into that whatever you want. But, uh, and also, I, I grew up coming here as a kid for youth events and things like that. And so, it's great to be back uh, with you. As Pastor Josh said, I teach at a place called Oklahoma Wesleyan University, which, whether you know it or not, is a university that is connected through the same network of churches to your church here at Grace Point. And so one of my roles at the university, in addition to teaching some classes, is to go out and to speak in churches like this to, number one, give your lead, lead pastor a break, because pastors need breaks too. And number two, to connect with people, specifically high school students, parents or grandparents who have kids in high school uh, who might be interested to learn more about a Christian university. Uh, one of the things we're passionate about at Oklahoma Wesleyan is that college can be a place where you go not to lose your faith, but to be strengthened in your faith as you're pursuing a degree in whatever God has called you to, whether that's business or education or ministry. And so I'm going to be outside these doors after the service. I'm going to make a beeline back there. If you're a high school student, I'd love to talk to you. I might even give you a free t-shirt if you, are, if you want to come uh, say hi to me. And as they say, that is the end of the infomercial. So if you've got, if you got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 5 today. Mark chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 24 there in, in just a second. This past summer, I got the chance to go on vacation with my family to Florida, and my wife's parents lived there, and so we were enjoying uh, a day at the beach, a literal day at the beach, and I have four little kids. They were playing out in the surf, just, just real close to shore, about like knee-deep water, waist-deep water, and my wife said to me, she said, hey, I've got to run back up to the house to grab something. Could you watch the kids? And I said, sure, I'll watch the kids. And so I did. Sort of, why are you laughing? Why was it? <laughs> You're laughing because I think you know. Like, sometimes the way that mom watches the kids and the way that dad watches the kids is not the same. It's like the Sesame Street song. It's like one of these things is not like the other one. And, and so I was watching the kids, but because I guess I'm a professor or a Bible nerd, I was also reading a book. And so I was read a little bit glance up at the kids, read a little bit, glance up at the kids, and they were right there. I mean, they were just right, they were not out swimming in the deep water, they were real, right close to, to shore. And then all of a sudden, I hear my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter, Penelope, and she's here with me today, I hear her just scream, and she screams, Dad, Ewan! And I realize Ewan is not a normal name <laughs> for an Oklahoma kid, but that's the name of my six-year-old son, my oldest boy. And I look up from my book, and he's not right by the shore where he'd been in like knee-deep water. He's been just sort of inexplicably just swept out to sea. And I, I remember I couldn't believe that it was real. Like the thing I was seeing was he was so far away from the shore. And I grew up swimming in Melvern Lake. I don't know if you know Melvern Lake. 
There are many things in Melvern Lake, but a rip current is not one of them. And I had not really had experience with this. I live in Oklahoma. He had just been caught up just inexplicably, just sort of dove under a wave with his little goggles on and just got swept out to sea in this ferocious rip current. And I remember I jumped out of my chair. I threw my book down. I I yell at my daughter. I say, stay here. No matter what happens, stay here. And I charged into the ocean. The only problem is... I don't really swim. <laughs> and that, that's not exactly true. That's a bit of a like, sort of pastor exaggeration. I've sometimes told people that I can't swim to save my life. That's not true. Like, I can swim a little bit. Uh, what I can't do is swim to save somebody else's life. Uh, I've just never been a strong swimmer. I, I sort of joked with the first service that I have about the buoyancy of a seven iron. Uh, just not super buoyant. And when I do swim, it looks a little bit like a guy, you know, trying to fend off a swarm of angry bees. Uh, not a great swimmer, but, but he's my son, and you got to try. And so I remember charging into the water, and I had this sort of flash of, like, I guess, inspiration. And it was, cry out for help. Like, don't just charge in. I mean, yes, you've got to charge in, but, but cry out for help. And I just sort of, we don't do that a lot as adults, maybe especially as men or as just proud people just scream, help, help. And I, I started to just scream help as I ran into the water. And thankfully, there were two guys that just happened to be walking by. And they charged into the water too. And they told me later, both of them independently, that they happened to be ocean lifeguards at a previous point in their life. And of course, they got to my son before I did, and they managed to to haul him into the shore, and he was okay, and I managed to somehow get myself back into the shore. But I tell that story not because it's, you know, dramatic, and certainly not because it reflects, you know, well on me as a father, but I think most of us have had an experience, maybe not like that, but an experience where you just feel blindsided by something that happens in your life. Like I, th- I sat there on the beach later and I was like, I was literally enjoying a day at the beach. And this was almost like the worst day of my life. Maybe you've experienced that where you just get blindsided by something that you didn't expect, that you didn't see coming and that completely changes your life. It was funny, we were walking back up to the house, and my daughter, I was very traumatized, and my daughter, Penelope, who had screamed out, she said, Dad, this was the best day ever. <laughs> I thought, why? I said, why, honey? And I thought she was going to say, because you didn't die, and you didn't die. She said, no, because I found this cool shell. <laughs> Just completely forgot what happened. And I think that's a little bit like life, too. Because while one of us is being blindsided by something, maybe something in your marriage or something with your health or something in your job, people around you can be completely like oblivious that anything traumatic has even happened. And so I tell that story partly because as I travel around the country and I speak at churches and I meet with high school students, I know a lot of people who, for you, something in the past two years especially has kind of blindsided you. And it may have been something to do with the pandemic. It may have been something to do with your health or with your finances. I don't know what it is. 
But we're blindsided and we're left asking the question, like, where do I go from here? And I hope you know the answer to every question in church. The answer is Jesus. <laughs> Spoiler alert. But I want to talk about part of that answer today. I think the solution to a lot of the things that blindside us in this life, the solution is something that the Bible calls holiness. The solution is holiness. And I know that sounds weird, because even if you've grown up in church, or you've come to a lot of, you've seen a lot of sermons or things like that, that word holiness, first of all, we don't maybe preach about it a whole lot, but even when we hear it, it it's often to kind of, it's easy to, to misunderstand it or to misdefine it. And it carries connotations that aren't always good. So if we refer to somebody as, quote, holier than thou, like that's not a compliment. <laughs> the word holiness sometimes can seem or sound kind of snooty or kind of uppity. There's a kind of look-down-your-nose quality when we use that word holiness. But I'm not here to talk about any of that. This is a passage, and this is a message on what I want to call offensive holiness. Not offensive holiness, but offensive holiness. A Jesus-style holiness that moves into the neighborhood, even when you've been blindsided, to heal and to help. And so that's what we're going to read about today in, in Mark chapter 5. If you got your Bible, the words will be up on the screen as well. We'll start in verse 21 and then skip down to verse 24 for context. It says this, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a little bit further down it says, a large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd, and he asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you could ask, Who touched me? But Jesus, and I love this line, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This is God's word. The word holiness is never mentioned in this passage. It's never mentioned explicitly. But if we dig beneath the surface, the sort of foundation for this passage, the beating heart of this passage is holiness, the holiness of Jesus. And so we have to kind of dig a little bit into the ancient context. This will be the only really academic, professorish part of the message, I promise. But at the heart of this passage, to get to the holiness part, at the heart of this passage is a woman breaking quarantine. 
And I know that might sound weird. I'm not talking about quarantine. I'm using that word simply because we've all become familiar with it in the last two years. This woman isn't breaking quarantine from some sort of infectious, contagious disease, but she was breaking a kind of quarantine because she is afflicted with something that the Jews in Jesus' day would have called a ritual impurity. And a ritual impurity, it was a bit like COVID or cooties. You could catch it. It was seen to be contagious. And so this woman would have been sort of isolated or quarantined or shut off from her friends and her family and her community because of this, this affliction. And so I want to introduce just a couple uh, really categories to you today to explain what's going on in this passage. And the first set of categories are the categories of the holy and the common. The holy and the common. And everything in Jesus' day, whether it's a utensil, like a cooking utensil, or even a clay pot, would have been classified as either holy or common. And it wasn't like good versus evil. For something to be holy, it, was, it just simply meant that it had been set apart for special use. And specifically, use in the temple, normally. So a clay pot or something like that could be either holy or common. For something to be common, it wasn't evil. It just was not set apart for use in the temple. So that's the first set of categories, the holy and the common. And then the second set of categories are the pure versus the impure. Pure and impure. And similarly, this isn't synonymous with like good versus evil, there were moral impurities, things we call sins, like lying, stealing, murdering, and those were moral impurities. But there were also ritual impurities. And for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, these would include things like if you touched a corpse, you would be made ritually impure. You'd have to do that at certain points. You'd have to bury a child or a spouse. It wasn't sinful, but it did mean you had to be cleansed corpses, what we call leprosy, that skin condition. And then there is a third kind of ritual impurity, and it's the kind that this, this woman has. And it was a, a bodily discharge, a flow of blood. And this is what we would call maybe delicately, she's afflicted by what we would call a women's issue. But it's a flow of blood that doesn't come once a month, but it says in the passage, she's just perpetually bleeding. And that means that she is perpetually seen as unclean and she would be sort of isolated or, or cut off from people around her. And the one thing you, you weren't allowed to do in the first century, it, it wasn't wrong to be ritually impure, but you would never take a ritual impurity and bring it into contact with something that was holy because that would be seen as not reverencing God's holiness. And it was like, I don't know, what's going to happen? Maybe lightning bolts? I don't know. Something's going to happen. And that brings up the first sort of truth about God's holiness. And that is this, if you're taking notes. Holiness, in Jesus' day, holiness was maintained by separation. Holiness was maintained 
by separation. That's why this woman would have been seen as needing to be separate from other people. I use that phrase social distancing, again, just because it's one we've become familiar with. Holiness involved being separate. And there's an important truth in that. I'm going to come to the, the problem with this or the limitation in a second, but there is a truth in this, even for us today, who don't live in the ancient world. And that is prolonged exposure to sin can make you sick. Amen? There's this truth about holiness that you cannot live, you cannot just continually immerse yourself in activities that are evil or immoral and expect it not to affect you. Holiness means being separate from activities that are sinful, that are wrong. It still requires separation. I think it's true as well that holiness may mean that you need to separate yourself at one point or another from a particular environment that is making you sick. Because we all know that those certain things can rub off on you if we immerse ourselves in environments that are not pleasing to God and that are not uplifting to other people. There's this truth. Holiness sometimes requires a kind of separation in our life from activities or environments that are making us spiritually sick. But, and here's where we come to a really important truth in the passage. The second observation is this from this text. Holiness that is only seen as separation will result in what I would call a segregated faith. Holiness that is only about being separate results in what I would call a segregated faith. And what I mean by that is that what actually transpires if we see holiness as only being about we don't go around those people, then the very people who end up needing God's holiness are cut off from it. The very people whom Jesus calls us to love and serve are kind of walled off from God. And this is the thing, if you read the Gospels, if you read the stories of Jesus that made him so angry at certain religious people, Jesus would get so angry with the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the, let's just say it, the professors of his day. Because they'd taken this partial truth that holiness sometimes requires us to be separate from certain activities, and they'd turned it into an absolute truth. And so people like this woman were cut off. They were isolated. Maybe you've experienced that. You've experienced that sort of isolation. Maybe you would be in your family, you've been referred to as, quote, the black sheep. Maybe you've felt what it's like to have people look down their nose at you. Maybe not even for moral things. This woman doesn't have a moral problem. She just has a physical problem. But I can, I can attest from experience. I had a, a close family member who had a, a terminal disease and, and he died from a disease called ALS. And what I watched over the course of his last year was not just the physical deterioration, but it was friends no longer coming around because it was too uncomfortable for them to see that deterioration. And an increased level of exactly what this woman experienced, just feeling alone. 
Holiness that is only about being separate from certain things results in the very people who need it the most being isolated. And that, that's why I love this woman. This woman is one of my favorite people in the Gospels. This is, this is what it says about her in verse 27, if you got your Bible. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. I love this woman because she is simultaneously incredibly bold and yet still like respectful for Jesus. Like she doesn't like jump up behind him and be like, ha, gotcha, you know, <laughs> now you're impure too. She doesn't do that. She reaches out and she touches the, the hem of his garment because she has this sense that somehow there's something he has that can help her. And if you had to put words around it, this is, this is what I think is so amazing about her. She's willing to take a risk that Jesus' holiness is different from the, quote, holiness that she has seen before. Because the thing about the other kind of holiness is if it came into contact with the impure, the holy thing would be contaminated. But the thing about Jesus' holiness is that it actually goes on the offensive. It's not just maintained by separation. It's maintained by redemptive encounter. It's like the power flows upstream. And instead of Jesus being made impure, this woman is made clean. And so the thing that she does is the thing that I think every single one of us are going to have to do at a particular point in our lives. We're going to have to take a risk, but we're going to have to reach out for Jesus. Maybe for you that means coming back next week for the start of this series on Jesus and mental health. Take a risk that Jesus can still bring healing and help for you. Jesus' holiness is different. There's a guy I interviewed called Matthew Thiessen. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Forces of Death. It's all about Jesus and Jewish ritual impurities like leprosy and eczema and dis bodily discharges. I don't recommend the book. Um, <laughs> it's a great book. Don't recommend. But let me give you the money quote from, from Matthew Thiessen's book. I think it'll be up on the screen. It says this. This story implies that Jesus' body can function like an unthinking force of contagion that inevitably destroys impurity. And I love that quote, because when we use that word contagious, we almost invariably use it in a negative sense. Like if I came up today and started my message, like, uh, please turn on your Bibles. Also, just FYI, I'm super contagious right now. You'd be like, I wish I would have sat further back. Matisson says Jesus' body is contagious in a good way. He, it functions like this unthinking agent of contagion, an agent of holiness. And so here's my big idea today. I think that's what we need in our culture, in our families, in our workplaces. What we need, I think, is an offensive holiness, a holiness that is actually contagious, it doesn't just maintain itself by being separate 
from all the people who are hurting or broken or sinful. That it actually engages in this kind of redemptive encounter with them. And so what I mean by that is a holiness that goes automatically on the offensive. But I think we could all agree it, it, it sort of matters how you say that word, doesn't it? Offensive versus offensive. And Jesus' holiness, I think sometimes, invariably, it will be offensive to certain people in certain times. It will. It was in Jesus' day. But the call for Christians is not to be trying to be offensive, but rather reaching out in love and grace, just like Jesus does to this woman. Maybe my favorite part of the story, it's always my favorite part of every Bible story, is the weird part. <laughs> the weird part is this, Jesus never decides to heal this woman. Did you notice that when you read the story? Matthew Thiessen says his body functions like an unthinking force of contagion. He, he never decides to heal this lady. It just happens because of who he is. And I, it's not how I picture Jesus, if I'm really honest, in this story. If, if I'm imagining this story, I kind of picture Jesus like he's got this divine earpiece, like, a, like he's a secret service agent, and he's getting dispatches, you know, constantly from heaven about, like, Jesus, we're in a, I know you're in a crowd, but you've got a bogey at 6 o'clock. Uh, bleeding woman, 12 years. Uh, would you like to heal her? And then Jesus is like, I don't know, is she a nice person? You know, that's not what happened. In the, in the actual passage, Jesus doesn't even know who touched him. He doesn't even know what her problem was. He simply notices that power has gone out from him, and he has to go, like, track her down. And I think, even though that's weird, it also reveals something about holiness. I think true holiness functions or begins to function at what I would call a precognitive level. Let me unpack what I mean by that. Like there are certain systems in your body that you kind of have to think about for them to work. Like if I want to pick up my Bible, I have to actually think about it. But there are other systems that are operating in, in your body right now, hopefully, that you don't have to actually command them to work. You don't have to tell your heart to beat. And you don't have to tell your pupils to dilate in response to light or darkness. If the body's working, those things function at a precognitive level. And here's the weird thing. I wonder if holiness can start to work like that. If the body's working, and I'm talking about the body of Christ that our default dispositions, we don't have to debate for 20 minutes when I encounter somebody, do I want to bring life or do I want to bring death? Do I want to bring judgment or do I want to bring grace? That holiness can begin to be a kind of default, not because we're awesome, but because the Spirit of God is working in the midst of the people of God. Jesus never decides to heal this woman. Here's another thing about offensive holiness, if you're taking notes. 
offensive holiness, I would say, is willing to be interrupted. Did you notice that in this passage? I skipped over a a really important part. Jesus is on his way to raise a dead girl. (laughs) Like the ambulance is on its way to the scene and Jesus gets interrupted. And he not only heals this woman, he takes time to hear her story. Which I think is another facet of holiness. Holiness, you could say, keeps looking for the person behind the problem. This woman is not just a problem to Jesus. She's a person. And he keeps looking until he finds her and he hears her story. And there's something about him where he compels her to tell the whole truth. It's one of my favorite parts of this passage. It says, and she approached him and trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. I don't know if you've ever done that with Jesus. Right? Here's a sort of spoiler alert. Like, he knows anyway. <laughs> he's like Siri. Right? He, he's listening even when you don't say his name. <laughs> she tells him the whole truth. And I don't think that was just a medical conversation. I wonder if it was this story about how for 12 years she'd been passed from male doctor to male doctor to male doctor And her bank account is dry. And her psyche is bruised. And she tells him everything. You can tell Jesus everything. There's no stigma about mental health with Jesus. There's no stigma where you need to hide things from him. Holiness compels people to spill the beans. It doesn't cause them to walk the other way. That's who Jesus is. That's the holiness that he brings. That's the hope that he brings. And I want to end today, I know we're out of time. I want to end today by talking about what I think is the obvious way to end this message, and that is um, by talking about tomatoes. (laughs) I have a friend named AJ, lives in Oregon, lives in the Willamette Valley, which I know from the game Oregon Trail. Um, And he's a professor there. He has my job. He he teaches college students, and he teaches college students who, just like my college students, are wrestling with big questions. They're wrestling with trauma and doubt and pain. And he says, I try to do ministry kind of like Jesus did, and that is around food. And so he said, I have him over to my house, and we cook dinner, we sit around the table, we talk. And he says, at some point, I will offer them some tomatoes because he grows homegrown Willamette Valley heirloom tomatoes. And I'm not a gardener. I'll be honest, when he told this story, I didn't even know when, I thought an heirloom tomato was just like a, like a really old tomato. <laughs> and he says, without fail, when we're sitting around the table, one of them will say, no thanks, or several of them will say, no thanks, I don't like tomatoes. And he'll say, that's not true. He says, you think you don't like tomatoes. I bet what you don't like are fake tomatoes. And maybe because of, you know, where you grew up or where you shopped, all you've ever tasted are fake tomatoes. 
And they've been made, they've been like engineered to look really good on the outside. But on the inside, there's not a lot of taste there. It's as if all the attention has been put on the outside and none on the inside. He says, just try some of my tomatoes. And he says, almost always, not always, but almost always, when they try a real, fresh, homegrown Willamette Valley heirloom tomato, they realize that they actually like tomatoes. They've just been turned off by the fake kind. I think holiness is like that too. When we encounter the kind of holiness that healed this woman, that repairs marriages and hearts, we realize that in some cases, you've just been turned off by the fake kind. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this passage. I thank you that just as he did 2,000 years ago, the holiness of Jesus is bringing hope and healing even today. And so my prayer for my friends here is that they would do exactly what this brave woman did, and that is that they would reach out for Jesus in the midst of the pain and the crowd and the fear and the isolation. They would reach out that they would encounter you. Maybe next week in this series on mental health, they would reach out. Maybe in a conversation with a coworker or a family member that they would reach out and bring health and healing just as Jesus did. Lord, that's my prayer for this church, that they would be a force of offensive holiness in the places that you've placed them. And so it's in Christ's healing name we pray.